This podcast and others are brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. You can receive all new content offered by EverythingVoluntary.com in your email inbox every single weekday for free. Visit Digest.EverythingVoluntary.com to subscribe. Uh, Hello. I'd like to talk for a while and then open it up to questions and answers or vicious criticism, whatever whatever you like. But I got to where I am now from when I was your, your age as students. Is there a big reverb on the microphone here? <laughs> so I hope you're making the most of your Northwestern education and getting your $60,000 worth. <laughs> yes, this year. Uh, I must admit, I did not really. Uh, When I went to college, I majored in this kind of stuff. (laughs) And I don't encourage kids to go to college straight out of high school anymore because unless you are unusually intellectually interested, academic, it was not such a good experience for me anyway. Um, But here we begin with Econ 310 or 202 for some of you. Um, I, had, I ended up in television, although I had no interest in journalism. I never took a journalism course. I was a psychology major because I found that chemistry was too hard. And when I graduated, I took every job offer I could get just to see what it was like. And one offered a free trip to Portland, Oregon. I'd never been to the Northwest, so okay, I'll take that job, which was working in a researcher in a newsroom. And that eventually led to my career in TV. But I just say this to encourage those of you who are annoyed by your friends who say, oh, yeah, I know what I want to do. I'm going to law school or this and that. My observation is that the people in my college who did the best were the ones who didn't know and were just on the balls of their feet. And the world changes constantly. There are new routes to opportunity. But I ended up in television. I worked as a researcher. I'm a stutterer. I never intended to go on TV. I grew up in Wilmette and took stuttering therapy here at Northwestern in the speech pathology department. It didn't work. But when I, obviously, something has worked since then. When I started in TV and they talked me into going in the air, my speech was so exaggerated just trying to compensate for the fact that I looked 12 years old and I was delivering the news, that that distraction made my stuttering go away. James Earl Jones stutters like crazy, but when he performs in movies, he doesn't stutter. Bruce Willis, too. This is not uncommon. As I got better at doing the news and it became more conversational, I had a lot of trouble and was about to quit, but I found a clinic that finally helped me. That's just to explain some of my background. My main point is to say that when I started in TV, I became a consumer reporter. 
part of it was fear of my stuttering. I didn't want to cover politics and have to compete at some press conference shouting out questions where I thought I might humiliate myself stuttering. So I took this other beat. At the time, and even now, most of the news was, what, crime, politics, weather, sports. Hardly anybody was covering science, business, psychology, consumerism. And so I said, I'll do that. I'll make a specialty of this. And inventing it, it turned out I was good at it. And I approached it with what I'd been taught at Princeton, which is the basic liberal university culture. We know what works. Through the power of government, we can make everybody's life better. This was the time of Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty. My politics professors told me, we know how to fix poverty now. We just need to create these programs. And I believed. And then I became a consumer reporter. That was an extra wrinkle. Because I saw that capitalism was okay. It brought us some stuff. But like most of my fellow students, I viewed it as cruel and unfair. And it was just intuitive. We need government to protect us from the greedy capitalists. And I can't get my brain about what makes one car safer than another or how to run a sewage treatment plant. You want experts, smart people to focus on this. It is intuitive to think life works best if there's some guy who went to Harvard who will tell people how to change the light bulb. This is a popular idea in the media. And as I did consumer reporting, criticizing businesses that I thought cheated people, uh, I won lots of awards. Uh, I won 19 Emmy Awards. I was a hit. This was... But the, the title of the speech is Freedom and Its Enemies. I was an enemy of freedom without realizing it, because... All the things I won these awards for were exposés of some problem in some business and a call for government to fix it. I'll give one example. We had, we sent a TV set around to 20 repair shops. It had a loose part. 18 said, oh, loose part. Put it back in, no charge. A couple of them said, oh, we better keep it over the weekend. And then we would come back and they would charge 150 bucks, yeah, we had to fix this or that. And I had a hidden camera recording all of it, so I could say, well, you wouldn't have charged us that just to put in the loose part, would you? Oh, no, we'd never do that. Oh, yeah, well, watch this, and I played the tape. And it was fun television. There was drama. He was embarrassed. And then the response was wonderful. We got phone calls at the TV station from the local politicians this was a great show. We're going to solve this problem. We're going to create a Department of Consumer Affairs. And they did in Oregon because of this reporting. And I was glowing with happiness. This is young John Stossel is having this impact. And now they're going to license TV repair shops, all repair shops. And this makes sense to people. We license drivers. We license dogs. It makes us feel like things are under control that they're safer. But I stayed in the consumer affairs beat, unlike my colleagues who moved on. So I could watch a couple years later and see that the problems weren't solved. I was getting the same number of complaints. What was the Department of Consumer Affairs doing? 
And there was this dreary office where they were licensing these people, which basically meant having them fill out forms. And for the immigrant, the newcomer, maybe he couldn't figure it out. He had to hire a lawyer. Or some of them went on the black market because they didn't understand the rules. And then they were at the mercy of cops who might want to extort something from them. But it didn't make things better for consumers. And I kept watching my reporting and the effects. And the more I watched the regulators work, I saw it didn't help. It cost a fortune. The least of it is the money taken from us in taxes to pay the bureaucrats, though that's big. But the bigger cost is the indirect cost. All the time and money that people have to spend filling out the forms or forming trade associations to lobby politicians so you don't get regulated out of business. This spiderweb of little rules that drives people to do stupid things, like you just heard earlier. You heard poor Jack have to recite this whole stupid Northwestern. The speaker's opinion is not this of Northwestern. I mean, nobody listens to that. It's just some lawyer somewhere, because somebody got mad over someone, imposes rules. And they're like barnacles. They never go away. They just grow new ones on top of the old rules. This is why economic growth hasn't perked up after this last recession. People blame Obama for a ton of things, but I I think it's just this accumulation of constant increase in regulation. None of you ever went on a high school field trip to your state capital and asked your legislator, uh, hi, what laws did you repeal? It's always, what new ones did you pass? And they keep adding more. And this strangles economic growth. It strangles it because you get to a point where, you know, I could start a business, but can I do it legally? I don't know. And maybe I shouldn't even try. I tried to open a legal lemonade business outside Bill O'Reilly's office at Fox. (laughs) In the two months I had before I had to put this on the air, I couldn't get it done legally. You had to get a government-improved fire extinguisher. You had to take a food safety course. You had to pass a food safety course. You had to be inspected by the health department. And so on and so on. The Fox lawyers ended up saying, all right, well, you can do this stunt, but when people buy the lemonade, you can't let them drink it, and you have to give them their money back. <laughs> so here I was, you know, they would take it, and i say, all right, stop! <laughs> Knock the lemonade out of their hand. They couldn't understand that. But this is what's happened in America now. I, I could have gotten it done in, in 70 days, but I couldn't do it in 60 days. I mean, what does this do to the person who doesn't have Fox's lawyers behind it? What also really convinced me that these rules weren't working is they didn't have any effect on the obvious crooks. The people selling the breast enlargers and the penis enlargers and the burn fat while you sleep pills. They kept getting away with it. They're still getting away with it. What would happen is that they'd run their scam and maybe five years in, the sleepy bureaucrats would notice. Then another couple years later, the district attorney or the state's attorney or some consumer affairs bureaucrat would sue the company. And then the crook would use our slow legal system to hire his own defense lawyer to hold him off for another five years. 
And then they would sign, at the end of that, they wouldn't go to trial, because that's ridiculously expensive. They would sign a consent order. A consent order is where you say, we don't admit doing anything wrong, but we won't do it anymore. And then they make sure there's enough money to go to pay all the lawyers, because the lawyers always make sure they get paid. It didn't make life better for consumers. This was confusing me as this garden variety leftist out of Princeton. I had this world vision of government making the world better. And what's the alternative? I was woefully ignorant. I discovered finally Reason Magazine, which showed me another viewpoint, which is the invisible hand. If I'd been more intellectual, I might have understood Adam Smith. But it was clearly true. The competition of the market protects consumers better than government ever will. Competition allows the market to police itself. It's hard to to believe it. The invisible hand, for one thing, is invisible, so you can't see it. Maybe it's better the way Hayek puts it. He calls it the spontaneous order. And when I think of that, I, I think of the story about the skating rink. I mean, what if you had never seen a skating rink? Uh, and uh, I told you, I'm this greedy businessman, and I want to introduce this new business. I'm going to lay down frozen water in a rink and charge people money to strap sharp blades on their feet and zip around on the ice. Young and old, skilled and unskilled, they'll just go on their own accord. And the only rule is, try to go counterclockwise. You would say, no, that won't work. You need more rules. You need a stop skating stoplight or skating police, skating directors. And yet the rink does work. Free individuals spontaneously work things out on our own. And that's how most of America works. I'm so sick of this election. Hillary... Hillary would micromanage every inch of our lives. Trump would, who knows what Trump would do? (laughs) He's this egomaniac, and it's hard to predict. Might start a trade war. But I take comfort in knowing that most of life is outside politics. It's this spontaneous order that brings us most of the good stuff. Now, when I say that, usually, to the campus socialist crowd, They say, you know, maybe some stuff, but it is, as you said earlier, cruel and unfair. And it'll work for simple things like clothing and music and movies, and America is vibrant in those areas. But much of life is just too complex for the market to work. Healthcare, for example, you got to have Obamacare or government healthcare because the patient doesn't know what the best treatment is. Or who the best doctors are. How can we possibly know that? You've got to have government involved in health care. Or education, K-12 through education. Parents don't know what the best curricula are, who the good teachers are. That's why we need government controls. And that just made sense to me. But then again, I kept watching the market work. And I thought about cars. Do you understand what makes one car run better than another or safer than another? I sure don't. They are enormously complex, as are computers, certainly as complex as education or medicine. And yet, consider 
the worst car you can buy here in Evanston and compare that to the best car a government could produce. Maybe you students are too young for this, but when I was your age, the best car was in the Soviet bloc was this thing. It's called the Trabant. It was the pride of the Eastern Bloc. There was a five-year waiting list to get one. It was a horrible car. It was hard to drive. It polluted. You had to put the oil and gas in separately and then shake the car to mix them together. But there was a five-year waiting list to get one. And we make jokes about stupid people. He's no rocket scientist. This was made by the East Germans. They were rocket scientists. This is the brightest of East Germany, and yet their best couldn't compete with our mediocre stuff. So why? Because not everybody has to be an expert for the free market to work its magic. You just need a few people, a few car buffs, a few people who read the car magazines. And in an open society, the good news and the bad news spread. The good companies thrive, the bad ones atrophy. That will protect us much better than government regulation ever will. But people don't trust it. I recently had a health scare. They plucked something out of my lungs, and I wrote an article about free market medicine, how that might improve health care, because doctors don't use email. They don't text. They don't use modern forms of communication. It's crazy. That's because it's mostly run by government. And in response, people in the Washington Post wrote back, free market can't work for medicine. What are you supposed to do? You're having a heart attack in the ambulance, and you start doing research on which is the best place to treat your heart attack? Who thinks this stuff up? Said a writer in The New Yorker. Well, Adam Smith thought it up years ago. And the invisible hand does work. Because you wouldn't have to make the decision about the ambulance, about the heart attack or which hospital you'd go to in the ambulance. Because you'd know. Through that same word of mouth, it would get out. Evanston Hospital sucks. You want to go to the University of Chicago or whatever it is for this or that. Your doctor would know. The people who really care would know and the word would spread. And we'd have competition and it would be better and cheaper because competition does that. People say, maybe I can buy it that clearly we get better cars in America through competition. But what about safety? The the factory owner doesn't care if his workers die. He's just a greedy person who wants to make money. And he is a greedy person who wants to make money. He cares about making money probably more than most anything else in that factory. So that's why you got to have rules to make sure the workers aren't abused, that they're safe. And so the government created OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And the head of it under President Clinton was fond of showing this chart about how workplace deaths had dropped since OSHA was created. And you look at this, and that's a wonderful thing. And injuries dropped, I assume, at about the same rate. And you could say, thank God for government. Except... You're shaking your head. You already know the answer to this one. Um, Some researchers went back, looked at workplace deaths from before OSHA as well as after OSHA. And they discovered this. (laughs) In a free society, things get better on their own. 
People get smarter. When there's an accident, they do things so there's less likely to be an accident next time. Unions can help lobbying for safety. As we get wealthier, we care more about safety. All that made us safer without government. Even the most venal factory owner starts to care about safety because he realizes that it costs him a lot of money to replace workers he kills. The free market will do it better than the state will. But we keep missing these lessons. Another one is the war on poverty that I so believed in when I graduated Princeton. They started this war, they created welfare, and as you see, the poverty line dropped sharply for the first seven years of the war on poverty. But then what happened? Government action always has unintended consequences by messing with the norms of society. In this case, it taught single mothers don't have a guy in the house. Because if the guy's in the house, if there's a husband, when the, when the welfare worker comes, you don't get the check, or you get a smaller check. We created an underclass of people who didn't have two parents at home. We perpetuated poverty. And look what was happening before the war on poverty. On their own, Americans were already lifting themselves out of poverty. This giant government program, which has now spent $22 trillion since it began, improved things for seven years and then stopped progress. That's what most government programs do, I finally learned as a reporter. And yet, they don't stop. Government just grows. This is government spending since the beginning of the republic. From 1776 to 1880, government, what percent of the economy should government be? What sounds right to you? Six percent, did someone say? Two percent? Eight percent? Well, for most of America, when we went from one of the poorest, tiniest countries in the world to, by here, the richest country in the world, government was less than 5% of the economy. Then you have the first blip, that's World War I, the second bigger blip, World War II. At that time, spending at least would come down after war. But then came Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, and Nixon's increasing it, and Bush increasing it, all of them increasing it, and now it just goes straight up. The only reason there's a tiny dip at the end of the line there is because that's the fall back after the big stimulus blowout after the last recession. And if we projected this chart into the future, as I assume you know, it's unsustainable because it just keeps going up. Mostly, it's mostly my fault, my age group's fault, because we rudely refused to die. And when Social Security began... Most people didn't live to age 65. It was a program for a minority of people who lived past that. But now we're living much longer. We want all that Medicare innovation that costs a fortune. We think we've paid into it, into a trust fund, but that's a lie. There's no trust fund. The politicians, as they always do, spent the money as soon as it went in. 
And the actuarial assumptions make no sense. This was based on a time when people died at age 65. So you students, you think it's going to be there for you? It can't be. The math just doesn't add up. And yet Donald Trump says, not going to touch entitlements. He's the Republican. I don't know what Hillary says. Bernie says, I'm going to increase Social Security. It's impossible. There aren't enough young people to pay for us old people. They are robbing you, Republicans and Democrats. Though some of the Republicans really have become more responsible. This last bill where they appropriated money for Zika, they actually said you can't have it unless you cut something else. And they cut the Ebola spending because that epidemic went away. In the past, they would have kept it going forever. They're drawing some lines. To me, the basic question we ought to be asking in this presidential race that nobody asks is, why is our life pretty good? Why is America prosperous? You've got seven billion people on Earth, right? May, less than a billion live anywhere near our level of wealth and comfort. So how come we did well and other places didn't? For a TV show, I ask an auditorium of high school students in New Jersey this question and got silence. And then finally one kid stood up and said, it's because America invented democracy. They don't know about the Greeks. And then another kid stood up and said, it's because we're a relatively new country, we have a lot of natural resources. And democracy's good, and natural resources are good, but that's not what makes a country prosperous. You've got countries in Africa that have enormous natural resources, and they're poor. So as part of this show, I went around the world and looked at poverty in India and looked at this one weird place that has no natural resources and no democracy, and that's Hong Kong. It's just a rock. No democracy. It had the, the British rulers and now the communist Chinese. And yet Hong Kong, in an even faster time, went from third world to first world. Went from third world poverty to roughly our level of wealth. What did they have? They had the ingredients of prosperity. It's not natural resources. And I said to these kids in New Jersey, um, well, India's got democracy, India's got natural resources, India's poor. And they said, well, that's because India's overpopulated. But that's another myth. The population density of India and New Jersey are exactly the same. New Jersey does okay. Not great, but okay. <laughs> but what does work are two things, that Hong Kong and America when we began had. There's two ingredients. Rule of law is one. Clearly you need that because the poorest countries in the world are the places where they don't have rule of law. So nobody builds a factory because you're afraid your neighbors may just steal what you make. Or, more likely, the dictator will take your whole factory. Why take the risk? Rule of law means if you have a deed to your land, 
it's yours. It means contracts can be enforced. It means if people cheat you, they can be punished. And this is what Hong Kong had. They had these British rulers who practiced benign neglect. It was wonderful. They enforced rule of law. They punished people who stole or killed. And then they sat around and drank tea. The government left free people alone, and free people in Hong Kong made themselves rich. We know what works. It's appalling. It's when there are six billion people on earth not doing very well, and two billion struggling to live on a couple bucks a day, living horrible lives. We know the ingredients of prosperity. They could have that if they were freed from kleptocrat governments that take away their opportunity. So this was an epiphany for me to learn these things. It's part of my show. I went around the world and I tried to open a business in India and it was even worse than my lemonade stand. Um, In Hong Kong, I could open it in a day. It cost $25. I opened a stupid business selling Walt Disney yo-yos and frisbees that nobody bought. But that opportunity to try something, permissionless innovation, is what allowed Hong Kong to become rich. It's tougher in New York today because you can't open that business legally unless you're all lawyered up and you wait months. So once I started focusing on things like that in my reporting, my experience in the mainstream media changed. I no longer won Emmy Awards. Apparently, my reporting was no longer good now that I was criticizing government rather than business. Somebody came up to me on the street in New York and where I live and said, Are you John Stossel? Yes. I hope you die soon. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out what, why, what's the hatred about? Why are they so angry? Is it because they think I'm a conservative and... In my world, that's like being a child molester. It is the worst thing you can be. (laughs) And you conservatives here have every right to be angry at the mainstream media that I was the closest thing to a conservative that ABC, NBC, or CBS had at the time. Because I'm not a conservative. I'm a libertarian. I think people should be able to take whatever drugs you want once you're an adult. I think prostitution should be legal. I think homosexuality is just fine. I think you ought to be able to gamble. I think government should stay out of your bedroom. And I think most of the stuff that's going to go on on Dillo Day is okay. (laughs) I thought this would mean the liberals around me would accept me and keep giving me Emmy Awards. But they were just angry. What are they so angry about? And I've come to think it's because I was defending some businesses, though many not, defending free markets over government regulation, which makes people comfortable. This idea of of central planning. When you're a kid, your parents run your life, and they make you feel safe. Think of evolution. For thousands of years... Your ancestors lived in little tribes. And if you didn't listen to the tribal elders as to when to harvest the fruit, 
you probably died and didn't give birth to the people who gave birth to you. We are programmed to trust that expert to tell us what to do. And because people don't really understand economics, people think of money, the free market, as a zero-sum game. That somebody makes a lot, I've lost a lot. To make a profit, they take it from me. Um, Sadly, Bernie Sanders certainly feels that way, and even more sadly, since he's going to be the Republican nominee, Donald Trump seems to feel that way. If China's making money, we must be losing it. But this isn't how markets work. This isn't how business works, because business is voluntary. I see why lawyers think this way, zero-sum game. Your world works that way. One person wins, somebody else loses. I see why politicians think that way. Same deal. But because business is voluntary, it doesn't work that way. Business only happens when everybody agrees to it, when everybody thinks they win. We should understand this because we see it every day in little transactions. You buy a cup of coffee. You give somebody, the clerk, a buck, she gives you the coffee, and you say, thank you, thank you. Why the double thank you moment? Why do you both say thank you? Because you wanted the coffee more than you wanted the buck. She wanted the buck more than she wanted the coffee. The transaction wouldn't happen unless you both thought you won. And that's how the whole economy works. Everybody has to gain. So Bill Gates having $80 billion doesn't mean we have $80 billion less. It's not like there's this pie and he took a big chunk and we have less. He had to bake lots of new pies with Microsoft that made us all better off. Or he wouldn't have that money. And it's all voluntary. Government is force. And yet, people are more comfortable with force. Okay. Not you people, thank goodness. But most Americans. Good point. And this is why I wrote this book. Uh, it, it was a play on, yes, we can, when Obama was first running. And, and he was right. Yes, we can. But under Obama, we came to mean government. You really have to listen when your professors talk about we. Who's we here? You know, free individuals or we the government, which is force. In the free market, everybody can get what you want, pretty much. Um, in government, if government ran supermarkets, then you'd have a vote. And if 51% of the people voted for fish over meat, everybody has to eat fish. In a free market... Different individuals get to choose. People say, well, you know, why are you so hostile to government? The government's a kind of free market. People vote. It's true. But they vote every four years or six years. Most people don't vote. The incumbents gain the system so much there's hardly any change. But, yeah, you've got to please your customer every four or six years. But those of you in private business know you've got to please your customer every day. You have to change every second if you're going to stay ahead of your competitor. That's the real free market. It's much better. But at least, even though government fails, we still have enough of a free market left until that government grows so much it kills it. That individuals succeed and they make life better for us. 
I've been talking about economic freedom, and economists focus on the economic part, creating prosperity, but the freedom part is just as important. My argument against big government is a moral argument, because when government gets bigger, we become smaller. When government takes away our choices, we have less control over our own lives. Our lives are less. Government cuts the tendrils of civil society. There used to be, before the welfare state, um, 14,000 mutual aid societies in America helping poor people, voluntarily. Now, they were racist, many of them. It was whites helping whites, Koreans helping Koreans, blacks helping blacks, whatever. But they were groups of people who got together and threw in money in the pot and argued about who in the community needed help. And the people in these little groups knew much better than the one-size-fits-all government bureaucrats about who did need help and who needed no help but a kick in the rear. They helped people once... Once Johnson's war on poverty began, those mutual aid societies vanished. Today, they'd be probably sued for being discriminatory. Government crowds out good voluntary efforts. But this is an optimistic book by the time I got to the end of it, because I realized that despite this growth of government and all the obstacles it creates, voluntary networks of private individuals create all kinds of good things and bring us the best of life. Universities like this one, clubs, charities, families, raising kids, working toward common goals. Businesses, the people who started Bat17 or Google or Facebook, all of them, Uber, they make our lives so much better. We take it for granted. But poor people in America today live better than kings live in old Europe. They didn't have air conditioning and flush toilets and phones and ways to communicate with each other. But we take it for granted. We take the supermarket for granted. We shouldn't. We should fall on our knees and thank capitalism every time we go. Because think about it. People in the Soviet Union starved in that rich agricultural country. But we go to the supermarket. It's open 24-7. It's well lit. The aisles are wide. They have 30,000 products on average. They're unbelievably cheap. They rarely poison us. <laughs> it's a miracle. When Obama be- Obamacare began, the D- Detroit Medical Center proudly announced that it was going to use barcodes to keep track of patient records. And everybody applauded, and I assume that was a good thing and progress. But Coke and Pepsi did that in supermarkets 40 years before. Why is healthcare so slow? Because in healthcare, seven out of eight dollars is not spent by the customer. It's not a real market. It's spent by a third party, government or an insurance company. Last example, and then let's open it up for questions or pushback. We take it for granted that we can go to a foreign country, stick a piece of plastic in the wall, and cash comes out. When we get, or we can give that same piece of plastic to a total stranger who doesn't even speak English, and he'll rent you a car for a week. And when you get home to Evanston, Visa or MasterCard will give you the accounting 
correct to the penny. You'll scream if they don't. And think how complicated that is, different exchange rates, all these transactions. By contrast, government can't even count votes accurately. (laughs) But our instinct in America, not yours, but everybody else's, is to say, whoops, wrong graphic, is to say, government's got to run things. Please say no. Fight for the right of free individuals to pursue our own lives. That's what made America possible. Thank you very much. Uh, so now our events coordinator, Grant, and I each have mics. We'll be walking around and let Mr. Sasso call on people, and we'll come to the mic. So why don't you just pick people then who have their hands up and give them the microphone? Much. Hello, hello. Wow, that's working. <laughs> Hi, Mr. Stossel. I have a question for you, but first I want to thank you very much for hosting the first ever televised libertarian presidential candidate debate. That was wonderful. We appreciated it. And this weekend, this weekend we're going to be choosing our candidate in Florida. I guess what I wanted to ask you is why and how? How did that happen? Was there any pushback from people that didn't want it to happen? And what motivated you to take the lead on that? It happened because the newest employee on my staff, and I encourage those of you in journalism to apply. We're always looking for new people. She said, you know, there's these libertarians running. We ought to do a debate. And I said, of course. Why didn't I think of that? And then I thought it should be two hours, that one hour wasn't enough. And then we had the problem, how do we narrow it down? Do we do, there were 15 candidates running. Uh, we thought it would, that wouldn't be educational. We picked the three who polled highest in the Libertarian Party poll. The only pushback from Fox was, you can't call it a debate. You have to call it a forum. And I said, okay, because I was happy they were going along with it. And their argument was that there are all kinds of rules between the networks and the Republican Party and the Democratic Party and what a debate is, so they didn't want to call this a debate. But they didn't impose any limits on that, so it was nice that we had that. The candidates did not so impress me. Some of them just seemed disappointing. But... Practice makes you better. By the second hour, they were good, and there were parts of it that were making me stand up and cheer, and I think all three of these candidates would be better than the two who are likely to win. Let's go left to right here. Yeah? Yes, ma'am. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. And Uh, why don't you say your name and your association so your neighbors get to know you? Sure. I'm a doctor and a professor, college professor, uh, not here, uh, teaching political science, Um, Olga Ravasi. And a little off topic, but I have to go here because the two of us drove from DePaul University tonight here. We attempted to see two events, and if you guys know, the college Republicans of DePaul University organized event tonight with Milo Yiannopoulos, and it got shut down, and I'm so thankful that this didn't get shut down. Um, As a professor, my question to you is, and as a libertarian, 
Um, how do you view this specific generation of millennials uh, with the safe spaces and the trigger warnings? And we ended up having a riot downtown. The police was scrambling. The event ended up outside, got shut down. I don't know if Milo made it out or not, but it was pretty hectic. It was really bad. Um, at the Paul. So we ran away and came here. <laughs> and so happy to be here uh, <laughs> in the safe space. But again, as a professor who teaches every day the students political science, um, how do we address this? And what are your um, thoughts on, on, I guess, liberty and advancing freedom and allowing the unpopular speech to be heard at educational institutions. I don't think I can add much that you haven't heard since you're here. You've read some of the crazy things going on, and they are just so stupid. But you've even got Obama saying this is stupid. And I think it's reached its peak, and I bet those DePaul students will be embarrassed at what they read about themselves tomorrow. You don't think so? But the pendulum swings. They get bad publicity from this. Uh, maybe I'm naive. I'm not normally optimistic. But I think this one has gone, is so crazy that the pendulum is going to swing back. And the university will be criticized in the media. Maybe they'll be sued by one of these free speech groups like FIRE. Um, and these... These stupid university bureaucrats, the ones who required that ridiculous introduction, they will eventually be shamed into being less stupid, I hope. Boy, he's fussy about who he picks. He does not go to the one nearest him. Um, I'm Beth Feely. I live in the area. I went to Northwestern. I'm very happy that you are here tonight. Um, I, you know, you talk about uh, big government being kind of the uh, counterforce to... Can you hold the mic a little closer? Sure. Big government. Sorry about that. Um, big government getting in the way of economies thriving. Can you talk a little bit about crony capitalism and um, what can be done to also make sure that doesn't get in the way of competition um, to truly help economies um, offer better choices for um, consumers. It's a good point. And as someone who talks about the free market being better and capitalism being good, um, I should make it clear that crony capitalism, we could call it crapitalism, is different. And people complain about how much money is spent in politics. Oh, this is terrible. In truth, it's less than we Americans spend on yogurt or potato chips. And politics is probably more important. But when government grows so big that it's in every cranny of your life, of course people are going to spend a lot of money to influence it. And if they can hand out grants for windmills and special deals, of course, you're going to spend a million dollars to elect some politician who will give you $10 million. 
That's crony capitalism and the worst use of government. And as government grows and the tendrils of these rules spread, it just increases. Thomas Jefferson said it's the natural progress of things for government to grow and liberty to yield. And that is just a form of it. The remarkable part of American life recently, and it's saved our economy, is Silicon Valley and the internet boom. I don't think it's any accident that it happened in the two metropolitan areas farthest from Washington, (laughs) D.C. Palo Alto and and San Francisco or in Seattle. Um, Washington didn't know what was going on to do deals. And they just grew and tried things and failed and tried other things and they created all this not just wealth, but wonderful stuff for us with real capitalism. Now they've lawyered up, and they're in the crony capitalism business. Uh, Hi, Mr. Sossel. I'm a journalism student here at Northwestern. Um, I have a question on kind of your belief on the Commodity Futures Act of 2000 and as well as the increase in voluntary regulation by the SEC um, and kind of the deregulation of banks under um, Clinton and Bush, and how, what you think, like, if that was a reason why um, the recession was caused, or I guess if that contributed to it. Well, this is deep in the weeds, and it's, it's why most media don't cover things like the consumer finance, I don't, can't even remember the acronym anymore. Um, But it is important, and these rules are one of the reasons that the economy hasn't bounced back, because all these banks closed, little banks. They said, we can't afford all these rules. It's another point about the crony capitalism that you mentioned. I talked about that licensing adventure when I brought the TV set around. The established companies love the licensing. The big banks like all this regulation, because for a fraction of their profit, they can afford to pay the compliance bureaucrats. I have some friends in New York. What do you do? I'm in compliance. Oh, I feel so bad for them. It's like it (laughs) sucks the spirit out of them. Um, The established TV repair shops say, yeah, give me a license. Keep the competition away. Eventually, with a lot of this licensing, the people giving out the licenses turn out to be the cosmetology schools requiring you to pay $4,000 to become a barber. The funeral director clinics requiring you to spend thousands of dollars and take a two-year course to build a box to put somebody in. Um, The established businesses use big government to keep competition out. And the only way to fight it is simply to say Government that governs least governs best. Don't give government the power to police everybody. We libertarians say even doctors and lawyers don't need government policing because if you didn't have or the FDA or food safety, because if you didn't rely on the government for that, private groups would spring up that would do it better, cheaper, quicker. Groups like Consumer Reports or Underwriters Laboratories. And when you bought food or when you went to the hospital, you wouldn't just assume it's good. You'd probably check on the computer. What kind of rating does it get from so-and-so insurance? That system would protect us better. Sorry for such a long answer. We're on this side now. Come on, Graham. You've got to be quicker there. These people have their hands up. Hi, uh, Stephen Ross. I just graduated last June. Um, my degree is in environmental science. Why haven't you left? (laughs) 
<laughs> I actually work in one of the tech startups from Northwestern. Um, so my degree was in environmental science, and I had a really strong background in climate change. Um, and so when you're looking at government regulations or the idea that we shouldn't have any, there really is no reason for an invisible hand to promote or prevent CO2 emissions, uh, especially when there is no economic feasibility because there's no carbon tax or any other sort of economic mechanism. And consumers aren't really looking to get their power from renewable energy unless they're willing to spend more, which is typically only reserved for people who are wealthy. So do you think, how would you address climate change from a libertarian perspective without it becoming an issue where because my city's flooded, now I have to go out, similar to that whole factory idea that because so many people have died in my factory, I now have to fix it? Fair point. Um, let's separate it, uh, start with pollution before we get to climate change. Uh, the founders, I thought, had it right. Just keep people from killing each other and stealing from each other, run the courts, run the post office, what's in the Constitution. But they didn't think about pollution. Now, pure libertarians would argue private property rights can solve this because if you pollute my air, you're violating my space. Uh, I can sue you, but our legal system is so slow, it would be very cumbersome to fight pollution that way. So I agree with you. We have to add something to the role of government, and pollution control is one of those things. And I'm glad this happened. When I was your age, it was before the EPA, and everything was getting filthier. Uh, in New York City, I don't know about in Evanston, in Chicago, you couldn't open the window because soot would come in. And the government stepped in and said, we got an air pollution problem and a water pollution problem. And for the air pollution, they demanded scrubbers in the smokestacks, and they took the sulfur dioxide and the nitrogen out of the air, and they demanded cities build sewage treatment plants and do tertiary treatment, make the waters cleaner. And Lake Michigan hasn't had the same kind of problems, but where I live, I'm in Manhattan, 8 million people, you got the Hudson River here and the East River here, Fifth Avenue, it splits. Every time somebody flushes, it goes either to the East River or the Hudson. Eight million people. And yet now, I can safely swim in the Hudson because of the sewage treatment. So that's good. That's the EPA doing good work. But government always grows. So they had these rules. The air got cleaner. How much, how pure must the air be? I think the EPA should stand for enough protection already. <laughs> but the global warming issue, climate change issue is more complicated. That, that, that's a job for government if it's really killing us. There's no market incentive to emit less. And then it becomes a question of we want government to do certain important things. Is this one? And a group of economists, some Nobel Prize winners, got together and started looking at what things really would make people's lives better. And fighting climate change, which they believed was a threat and ought to be fought, was 20th on their list. Way beyond fighting malaria and giving a vitamin pill to kids who die in Africa and clean water places where they don't have it. Global warming is probably a threat. Climate changes. There is global warming. No question. It's probably going to get warmer. Man's almost certainly doing it. We are coming out of the Little Ice Age. There's an argument that man isn't even doing it, that it would happen anyway. 
I kind of think we must be contributing because we're putting so much carbon in the air. But what possibly can we do about it now? Nothing. Nothing we are doing now. Even if every country did it, and China ain't going to, India isn't, Africa isn't, all this trillions we're spending is going to make no difference. And even the IPCC admits, if we all do this, it'll make one-tenth of a degree difference over this many years. There's a science fiction story. What's the fastest way to get into the next galaxy? And the answer is to do nothing now but wait 20 years when it may be possible. I would say that's a much better answer with climate change. Watch it. If, we're, if the alarmists are correct and we're really seeing this, we'll be in a much better position to do it then if we haven't bankrupt, bankrupted ourselves doing stupid stuff like subsidies for rich people like me who have solar panels on my roof or people who build windmills on their property and get tremendous tax breaks. That's disgusting taking from the poor and giving to the rich. One more, do you think? Two more? Uh, my name's John Merber, and I'm a senior economics major. And I was just wondering if you thought Glenn Beck's support for Austin Peterson would have any significant effect on the Libertarian Convention this weekend? The, the, the audio reverb maybe missed some of that question. But look, I'm not going to support Austin Peterson. He's one of the three leading Libertarian uh, candidates. He's, he's very sharp, and he may be good, but I'm glad I couldn't hear the question because I'm not going to pick one. Who do I support? I support them all. I'll, whoever gets nominated, I'll vote for. My vote doesn't count. I live in New York. <laughs> oh, your vote doesn't count. You live in Illinois. We'll take, all of you do. We'll take one more. And we thank you uh, in the rest of the country, Illinois, for being a, a, a model for failure. Uh, <laughs> Maybe as we watch your pension system blow up, the rest of the country will learn something. Though we didn't learn from Greece, so... Yes. Uh, hi. Uh, hi. I'm Kyle Burke. Uh, I'm, I'm just a math major, but I'm a libertarian, and uh, I just want to say I love your show. And I had a question about education, which um, I didn't think uh, you talked as much on as some of the other topics. But I wanted to hear your thoughts on uh, school voucher systems and uh, how those can be used to possibly combat the issues uh, we're facing with the education system in, in places like Detroit and just generally throughout the United States. And also your thoughts on uh, big government and its relation to uh, education and uh, like national programs like Common Core and what you think about that as well. So forgive me, this takes sort of a longer time to answer, but K-12 education has been run by governments ever since Horace Mann wrote a paper saying this is going to end the crimes of the penal colonies. And we all said, yes, central planning would make it better, and we know what we've got, very uneven system. People say, well, that's because we don't pay teachers enough. We don't treat education as important enough compared to hedge fund money and so forth. But you don't realize how much we're spending. We've tripled spending over the past 30 years. Scores haven't gone up. We're now spending on average about 13000 per student in America. 
do the math, class of 25 kids, you're looking at almost $300,000 per classroom. And this is not the capital cost, cost of the building. This is just operating costs. Think what you could do for $300,000. You could hire four great teachers instead of just one or a, one and a teacher's aide. Where does the money go? Nobody knows. I mean, some of it goes to the union, but money just disappears in Monopoly. Our education system is like this. This is what happens when you get government monopolies. Now, how can you bring in the market? Well, one argument is vouchers, and a way to think about that is attach that $13,000 to the kid. Let the kid go to any school. It's a form of school choice. It certainly is a better idea, the beginning of a market, but it'll be tough and has problems, because what if somebody opens the uh, Osama bin Laden School of America Hatred? Got to let them take the voucher money there. People will want regulation. The, the Cato Institute, which I respect a lot, says for reasons like that, tax credits are a better idea. But when I hear the word tax credits, I immediately go to sleep, and I think that's hard to sell to America. But clearly, a market, which is choice, which means competition, will make it better if they just allow it. In New York, the biggest school system, we've got these Success Academy charter schools. My ultra-leftist mayor wants to crush them. But these are kids in the lowest-performing neighborhoods where I visited, and I say things to the kids like, school is boring, and fourth graders. No, it's not, Mr. Stossel. Well, writing is hard. Well, it's hard. And, but, but they make it fun here. These kids, these fourth graders were arguing back at me. I sent my prissy kids to fancy private schools, and they weren't as articulate as these kids. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing in this charter school. They, they have tricks like a teacher wears an earpiece and a master teacher's in the back of the class and makes suggestions. Maybe that helps, I don't know. But the beauty of competition is that it brings those out. Let a thousand flowers bloom. And vouchers is one way to do that. Um, so I think we're out of time now, but if we could just have one more round of applause for Mr. Sasson. Thank you very much. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Thinking and Doing, a podcast where I examine logical fallacy, cognitive bias, stoic teachings, and tips on being better at life. You can rate and review this podcast in your podcast app, and please share it with everyone you know. Please consider supporting this podcast and everythingvoluntary.com by setting up an automatic monthly donation at patreon.com forward slash EVC. One-time donations are also accepted at paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary.